Welcome to The Village Lantern, a podcast for families living with hidden challenges, such as autism and other neurodiverse conditions, and for anyone else wanting to understand, love, and support. Our mission is to build understanding, empathy, and love for families living with one or more children who have hidden conditions that make life harder in one way or another. We call this Extra Zing. Parents come to a psychologist or a paediatrician because they want the best outcome for their child. In this role, it is so much about making sure that parents are getting the support they need. I always say this, once I give you the diagnosis, and it, this is the same child, it's the same child you brought to me that you're leaving with. Just because they have this label or this disorder doesn't change who they are. And I think that's really, really important. Episode five. Expert insight. How has awareness and understanding of ASD changed in both schools and psychology? Deidre Brandner started as a primary school teacher and was driven to become a psychologist after seeing children in classrooms struggling who were not receiving the support they needed. Deidre has been a fully qualified child psychologist for over 20 years and works with kids and their parents to understand, manage and thrive with their unique characteristics and strengths. All right, all right. Welcome back to another episode of The Village Lantern. You've got Anna and Jordan here. Anna, how are you going? I'm good, Jordan. How are you? I'm good. I'm feeling good because I just spiced up our intro a little bit I and went for something a energy. bit different. Oh, I'm buzzing. I'm popping today. I'm excited I'm, about this one. I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it. Well, I'm excited particularly because Deidre uh, has been working with our family for a while now, a long time now, a good three years. And honestly, she's just the most divine human as soon as she's in front of you, I mean, I wonder if you felt this when we were talking to her. She's kind, she's generous, she's positive. She's a beautiful human. She's a great psychologist, really experienced. And I think that what you're going to hear today is going to be really interesting. Absolutely. Well, with a, with a rap like that, I mean, it speaks volumes to Deirdre. It was great to be great to be in her presence. I mean, she's she's so sensitive and, and, and soulful and then just so smart. Uh, it's a real... Real blessing to be able to chat with her, and I'm really excited for our listeners to be able to hear what she has to say and and learn from some of her insights. Let us know what you think. Here we go. Well, Deirdre, welcome to our podcast. We're so pleased to have you here, Jordan, and I've been looking forward to having you. So Deirdre Brandner is a child psychologist, and I'm very pleased to say she's been my rock of psychology advice since we've been working through various issues with more than one of my children, actually. And Deirdre is a very warm, loving psychologist, which for my children is exactly what they need. I'm sure that there are different needs for different kids, but even recently I tried to bring my little guy in and he almost wouldn't get out of the car and Deidre said, don't worry, <laughs> this will only happen once. <laughs> and of course he came out thrilled. So um, welcome Deidre and we're looking forward to conversation with you today about the community that we're talking about, which we define as the one which lives with hidden challenges. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. A pleasure. Um, so let's just start off, Deidre, you've been working for over 20 years as a child psychologist. Can you share some of your observations about what's changed over the years in terms of understanding? Um, today, we're going to talk specifically about autism as a hidden disability or disorder. So 20 years in psychology, but my previous career was in the classroom. I was a teacher. And I know that 
looking back during that time, standing in front of that classroom, there were definitely children who would have been on the spectrum and had no diagnosis. And even there as a, a young teacher, we weren't taught about this at Teachers College. I think that's one of the reasons why I went into psychology. How were those kids viewed back then? Well, often they were viewed as naughty or their parents are just not managing them properly. They yep. let them get away with everything. They're lazy, they're weird, they're mm-hmm. strange. They've and, got too much control. Yep, they just want to boss the room. Mm-hmm. They want to dominate the play or they just don't know how to play. Mum mustn't let them have enough, you know, play dates. That's why they're like they are. And it was just heartbreaking and I think innately I didn't know a lot about autism then. Um, you know, 23, I knew nothing but I knew it wasn't right and that's what led me into to working in this field. But even starting out in psychology 20 years ago, there was nowhere near, even in my studies, the amount of emphasis on, on autism. And the children that came to you in your practice often came through the medical model. Right. So who? what sort of referrals were you getting then? So they were often from out of... Royal Children's Hospital or from a paediatrician and families have presented initially with a physiological issue. Like what? Give us an example. So like severe stomach pains or, you know... Or headaches. Headaches or... So neurology, often I got referrals from them. And and these are obviously really smart people who, you know, want you to address that the somatic symptoms were just that. Then led on to let's have another look here. So, yeah, so the referrals usually came from the medical field. I remember once um, before we knew about our oldest boy, I was I ended up at the gastroenterologist mm-hmm. because he kept having tummy aches all the time and he was... Oh, I, we went through everything. We went through all the different food allergies and all, and, we, and the gastro was like, it's probably anxiety. And I was like, what do you mean? What are you, what are you talking about? And if, at that time I couldn't see it. In him, no. now it's come out now as he's older. But at the time, I was like, he's fine. There's no, and it's fascinating how anxiety can come through the body, Absolutely. and not necessarily through the way you talk about it. And even through things like rashes, like dermatologists often look at those. What's sitting behind this in terms of other causes that are presenting for this for, for the diagnosis of ASD? So, but nowadays, I have to say, particularly the last fifteen years there's been a definite increase as childcare workers, kindergarten teachers, family daycare workers have become a lot more aware of what this might look like. And people are much more likely to seek a diagnosis now than they once were. And the other thing that's a big part of this is that the training behind diagnosis for psychologists in particular definitely increased and you felt like you had the right tools. Initially it was screeners, you know, people were over-diagnosing, under-diagnosing because we didn't have the right tools. But now that there are evidence-based tools, you feel much more comfortable in having the tools to support the diagnosis because they're what gives you that information. And how have you seen the dialogue and, and communication change? Obviously you said 20 years ago it was all put down to behavioural issues and obviously we're in a totally different place now, but what's been the process? When did that dialogue change, advocacy begin? What's that process look like? Look, I think one of the things that happened is the education program for teacher training became much more aware of this as a presenting issue. I think also undoubtedly 
the financial support that the government started to put in place. One of the first financial programs was put forward by Tim Fisher. He had a child with autism and he started putting in play the Helping Children with Autism package, which worked well for a number of families in feeling confident about seeking a diagnosis and what difference that would make. That's, I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? I mean, politicians mm. doing things to change the world based on their personal experience. Absolutely. Was he um, open about that as well? Like, yes. Yeah, that's yep. amazing. It was. Yep. Um, so that made a huge difference because once there were funds, organisations were able to get behind that, you know, amaze the autism set up. That, was, that became part of everyone's world. And once upon a time, it was only a couple of people that knew about that. Also, the idea of diagnosis involving a multidisciplinary approach, that's really important because you've got to have the fabulous work of speech pathologists and occupational therapists and dietitians and physios to make sure that the child was getting all the supports they need. And then, of course, what happened there was you had those professionals having more interest in this area, so they became more educated so, you know, it went around many, many different aspects that got us to this point. And I think as a, as a psychologist now, working in this field is so much more fulfilling because I feel that you can make a really significant difference to these children's lives and their families because it's not, you know, the psychologist or the pediatrician waving the magic wand. It's involving all these other professionals that work together with these families and their children. And I say families because this is not about changing the child. We don't need to change these children. They're absolutely fabulous. It's about us as as educators, as carers, as professionals, learning to help change the environment around them, give them some tools and strategies that help them get through the tricky times. But it's working as a partnership. How would you say when you're approaching that? I mean, obviously a lot of people when you're chatting with disability and there are behavioural issues and there are support requirements, you know, the immediate thing is how can we you know, help help the child, fix the child or manage the child? Obviously, you know, we chat about the social model of disability and we chat about the fact that often it's it's about, you know, learning how to work the external environment to better adapt and suit to allow the child to thrive. What are your main sort of things that you chat with or work with families to improve the external environment rather than putting the focus on on changing characteristics of a child that that are there and and can be positive? I think it's about flexibility of families and also knowledge. And I think it's great to see families who really, when they've got to the point, you know, processing the diagnosis, try to educate themselves and are open to listening to different models that might work. Of course, in saying that there's not one autistic child that's the same. It's no one process or therapy or mode of modification is going to work for each child. And I think it's having that idea of flexibility. And and as you would well know, what might be working one week isn't working the next. And what worked for that family at age seven and eight doesn't work at nine and ten. And I think the other thing that's so hard, I mean, I love the idea that we try and change them as little as possible, but that doesn't always make it easy for them to get through the, the world that we're in. And one of the things Jordan and I are trying to do is to change public perceptions and understandings because that would play into making it easier for them to live as they want to live, right? So rather than having to adjust too much. But I think it's the school system. I mean, I think, you know, we talk about the external environment and kids are at school until they're 17 or 18 and there is so little that I've seen really effectively being able to shift 
those systems or those processes or, I mean, I don't know, even my children have all been to several schools trying to find the right thing and I've gotten to know the leads of the schools really well and I highly respect them. But it, it, it is evident to me that they don't actually have a lot of knowledge or understanding about this. And these are at some of the top schools in Melbourne. They're wonderful leaders. They're very, very well credentialed. And it just says to me that the, it's just not quite there in terms of part of their education or part of what the system is expecting of them to bring. And, you know, I know in other countries, like in the States, I know there's many things yes. that aren't going that great, but they, their uh, education, the public system has got the stream for extra needs in every single school they have to. Mm. But they can bring them in and out and they can, you know. So I think that, I still think that it's very hard to not adjust if you have to go into the mainstream school system. Absolutely, and you're right. I mean, that's where they spend the majority of their time. And to be honest with you, that's where we see most of these children's anxieties present. And I think coming from a teaching background, I know what needs to happen. And it's sometimes, a, we've talked about this before, it's a mm. bit of a PR exercise mm. in gently suggesting what would make things better for this child and encouraging teachers and schools to understand that. And I think what happens some years, you get a great teacher who really gets it. And then unfortunately, for whatever reason, the next year, you know, that's not replicated. And it, it's so evident in the functioning of the child, in the levels of anxiety that they experience. So one of the things that I have tried to work with, in, you know, in the past and hope to continue to do so is going into schools and giving them that knowledge of what simple things you can be doing to support children with a diagnosis, but more importantly, understanding what that child might need. Mm. And I've seen some teachers do some really, really wonderful things, go and educate themselves, get books, talk to people that are experts. I know one of the teachers we had at one of the schools was emailing you saying, this happened, what do you suggest? Like yes. she was yep. so actively trying to do her very best. Mm. And I think most of the time that is the case for Absolutely. teachers. I have seen some teachers get very frustrated, which mm. I also think, like I know, understand personally that you do get frustrated, but kind of have to kind of work around the personal responses because, you know, I mean, even if I said to my husband, which I said to Jordan the other day, you can't shout. It's so counterintuitive. It All you want to do is shout when it gets to a certain point, but it actually is the worst thing you can do. You can't shout and you can't shh. No, you can't. going to classrooms and I see the shushes and I'm like, oh, this isn't going to go well. Yeah, it is really important to have those conversations. Did you want to talk about when you can't, like the shh and the yelling, why is that such a negative way to approach discipline with someone who has special well, needs? Well, actually, I think it's inappropriate with any child, but particularly these children who are often very, very sensitive. Mm. To in, noise. To noise and to, to the loudness. And if you shh me, I actually don't know what you're asking me to do. Mm. And I think, you know, they're, they're two simple things for all, for all classrooms and for all homes. Don't waste time telling children what you don't want them to do. Tell them what you do want. It's so true and it seems so obvious, but it's so, it's not really that natural. It's not, no. Could we go back, I think, to Jordan's question? Could you give us a bit of a, an explanation from a psychology perspective about what is happening? And I know that it's very hard to generalise, but if you had to describe what autism is in children from a psychological perspective. What happens for a child with autism, what it looks like, is their understanding of how the world works socially and emotionally isn't as accurate it doesn't come as easy and it's not inferred. They miss the social cues. Um, they miss visual cues. 
unless they're really obvious, the subtleties of facial expression and, and gesture, they don't often take into account and they often don't use that. So it's sometimes like walking into a world where everyone's speaking a different language. And then when I don't get something or understand, you get cross with me. And I don't really understand why you're getting cross with me because I don't understand emotions. The other thing for children with autism that's really important to understand is they think that you know what they're thinking. It's the theory of mind. So often that happens when they think they've explained the issue or the problem or they think you should just know what the issue or the problem is. So if I was to say, Millie, I don't understand what you're thinking, my experience is that also there's a bit of struggle with finding the words to actually explain thinking and feeling, mm-hmm. like quite a lot of the time, how are you feeling? I don't know. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And having, I mean, that's why a lot of the therapy that starts with children with a diagnosis is around learning what emotions look like and feel like. You know, part of that diagnosis, we ask them, you know, what makes you happy? What does it feel like when you're happy? And classically, children with autism can tell you what makes them happy. It's usually the iPad. Um, <laughs> but they can't tell you what it feels like. Why is that? Because that language or that feeling, there's a disconnect. It's often why some children with autism, not all, but some say that they're hungry when they're not actually hungry. Yeah, we They're get anxious. Mm. Mm. And that idea of not knowing when they're full, because mm. that's that sensory issue. I don't know what full feels like. Can you talk through sensory issues a bit? I remember when we first got our diagnosis and there was this, you know, a lot of discussion about sensory, even before the diagnosis, sensory, and I, I had no idea what that meant. I know. It's such a strange word to use. And it's not used in any other. I don't know that it's really used except for... Well, the great thing now is actually there's a lot more of it. You know, everyone's getting weighted blankets and we went to the fidget spinner stage and, you know, they're the basic tools for many of my families with a child with autism. And what happens for them is they're either sensory-seeking sensory avoidant. And look, to be honest with you, all of us have a little bit of that. Absolutely. Like I despise what used to be in the olden days when I was teaching the sound of screeching chalk Mm. on a blackboard. What about when someone eats an apple? I say to my husband, don't take a bite until I leave the room. Absolutely. It's it's so interesting. Like since working with lots of different individuals with special needs over the past few years, I've become so much more aware of tendencies and, and self-soothing behaviours that, that I have that I've always had that you just don't pick up on. It's only when you pay, you know, heightened attention, which, you know, with someone with additional needs, it, it becomes very complex and, and heightened for them. But then you pick up on it and say, yeah, you know, that I can understand that. And I do some of these things and, and understanding that that's not their thing and this is our thing. It's really, these, this is a human thing that's just a bit heightened Absolutely. with them. Yeah. I remember when I realised, well, I, I think I've, everybody knows now that I, also have a diagnosis of ADHD, which was not a surprise, but I didn't get it until my oldest was diagnosed. And But now I'm so, it, it's the same thing, and, but I've got a book that I can read, helps me understand myself. So I used to bite my nails, I still do. I used to get headaches, I used to have anxiety. But I sat at a desk for 16 years <gasps> in a building. And I used to wonder, I used to, when I would on the phone, I would go into a meeting room and lap the table just walked laps around the table and I, because I felt more like my brain was working better and I felt calmer when I was moving. And now I realise I really need to be on my feet a lot of the time. I need to be active. Doesn't even, like cleaning the house, don't mind it. 
because it's so physical and I'm getting something done and I feel really productive. I was I was agreeing with you until the last part. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about that and then got to the last part. I said, yeah, no, mum, mum wouldn't agree that I find too much enjoyment in cleaning. I did pay- not clean when I was 21, Jordan, don't worry. <laughs> um, but yeah, so sensory seeking or sensory avoidant, we all have a little bit of that. It's magnified in them. So sensory seeking children will spin or rock or want to lean hard up against you. They really benefit from those bare hugs. So the children who, you know, like a weighted blanket, sensory avoidant, the opposite. And you don't have one or the other, they'll often ebb and flow. So it can be sensory seeking one day and avoidant another. So sensory avoidant, you know, the tags on my clothes annoy me. These pajamas are scratchy. There's a smell. This doesn't feel right. Even visually, if I've got a day where a lot of the families I'm seeing or children I'm seeing have a diagnosis of autism, I don't wear a highly patterned dress or shirt huh. because that's overwhelming for them. Oh, interesting. So they're the sorts of things that we really need to be aware of. Now, the thing about autism that I still find I suppose confounding is that it's a combination of a series of symptoms, isn't it? So mm-hmm. sensory issues, like I have those mm. as an ADHD, with an ADHD. Mm-hmm. So actually that's not limited to autism, but no. autism is a combination of that plus the communication issues plus the repetitive behaviours. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about the repetitive restrictive behaviours? So for a diagnosis, you know, there's impairment in communication and that's got nothing to do with you know, your fabulous verbal ability. You can be very eloquent and have great receptive and expressive language. So it's about communication from using gestures, but also what we call pragmatic language, how you use language socially. The other part is looking at creative play and imagination. And we look at what that looks like pre the age of four and then post the age of four if you're diagnosing later on. Why is that, Deidre? What is the significance of So the idea of the way the assessments are set up, particularly the autistic diagnostic interview, the calibration of looking at the diagnosis, was there some sort of, and I hate using this word, but it is in the test, abnormality evident before the age of, it's 36 months. In any of those factors? In any of those factors. Mm. Because I remember I was asked, did Millie play imaginative play? Mm -hmm. And I was like, sure, I think. I actually don't know. I don't remember noticing either way. And then then I doubted myself. I was like, maybe she didn't. You know, because she had all the great verbal skills, but she was rocking early. Rocking. Which is a sign of the repetitive behaviours, but yep. also the imagination's really interesting because people come in and tell me, oh, yes, imagination playing, like she pretends we're at the cafe and she makes coffee and she gives it out. Or, you know, my son watches, you know, Thomas the Tank Engine and gets his trains out and yeah. that's not actually imaginative play because you're just reenacting a model. That's so hard for, human, for people without understanding to Absolutely. know the difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. So imagination is being able to adapt to playing with something that's used for something different, like making a block a telephone. It's using objects, not what they're intended for. So yeah, so that's about the play and creativity, and that often relates to inference. Can you not, please not explain? Not being able to infer, sort of the pretend, or let's just pretend, and they'll go, well, well we can't pretend because that's an aeroplane and you're using it as a telephone. So it's that... <laughs> It's that rigid thinking, but, you know, this is why I actually see this as one of the strengths Mm. of these people because they are fabulous. They call it out as it is. And there's lots of professions 
in the world that need that. Yes. So, yeah, so, you know, I know I digress, but I think that's wonderful. And so it's, and then the third part is the restricted and repetitive behaviours. So that's where you see the the sensory stuff, the hand and finger mannerisms. The lining lining up toys, is that it? Lining up toys, focusing on playing with just a certain part of the toy, not the whole toy, wanting things the same way. Food. Um, rituals, yes. So food's often linked to sensory. Right. Mm-hmm. Not restrictive. Restrictive and sensory. They're oh. restricted because I can't trust what another one's going to taste like or feel like. And what do you think the difference between boys and girls is? Because that's something that I think is really still unresolved and certainly from our experience. Well, firstly, my, our daughter didn't present like the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I think at least at the time because I think the book, if, if we're calling that the diagnosis mm. framework, was more designed around boys. Yeah. Well, there's a whole, there's a whole lot of advocacy uh, in disability right now and in, and in feminism talking about how diagnoses are just centred around male characteristics and there are mm-hmm. so many more boys being identified as having a diagnosis and then having supports put in place to manage that, whereas girls uh, may have different tendencies that manifest in different ways and present in different ways and therefore need the support of a diagnosis but don't receive it as frequently. What's your commentary on that? Well, this is a really interesting point because we know that the rates of diagnosis of autism have gone up. The most recent data we used to quote, one in 100 now we're saying one in 70. I mean, that's a significant increase. And we also know that the rate of diagnosis for girls is increasing as we're becoming more knowledgeable. The reason why girls' diagnosis often comes late and often I'm, I'm, I'm diagnosing girls who are 12 and 13 years old. Mm. Girls with autism are really good at copying or mimicking social behaviours so they look like they're in amongst it because they're really good at trying to follow what I'm meant to be doing. They don't understand what it is, but they follow it. Mm. So they can go along with the group until a certain point. Until they get so frustrated that they don't understand or they're not being included in the way they want to be. I've noticed with Millie, if we give her a role in a social group, so your role is to make sure when you're on the trampoline that everyone's safe. Mm -hmm. She's much more comfortable because she knows what she should be doing because otherwise it seems to be like this open-ended social scenario that you don't know where it's going to go and then you feel often really feel left out because everyone else seems to be getting along and having fun but for some reason... And that sometimes, you raise an interesting point there, Anna, because in the younger years of, of play in, in the yard, which is where, you know, you make or break socially really, there is no cruel place in the world than a schoolyard. There's no rules to start with. It's like not. Well, except for don't hit each other, right? Mm. But there's mm. no... Which isn't uh, <laughs> always abided by. Right. But they need a little playbook. They do. They they need a playbook or they need a lot more structure around their games. And there's been some research going around about why we see more diagnosis of girls now than we once did. Once upon a time, even girls' play was much more structured. You know, in the olden days, like when I went to school, (laughs) we had a skipping rope. Huh. And you knew what was going to happen. The bossy girls were the ones who told you what game we were playing and one person stood on each end and it was very fair. You lined up, you took a turn. The same with things like elastics that we used to play. That you I used two to were, play that. That was quite good. Well, see, it was wonderful because it was you were moving and it was structured. Mm. So those small things actually really helped these girls survive in what was a difficult situation. One of the things I've said about... Millie, that's particularly hard is that, and because we know autism looks so different for everyone, is that at one point we approached a school and they said, yeah, yeah, we know autism in girls, no worries. 
and that they didn't know her kind. <laughs> they, you know, I think they knew the kind where maybe, again, I'm totally generalising, but you're a bit of a wallflower, mm-hmm. quiet, you know, just sits at the back of the room. And Millie's the complete opposite of that, very defiant, very very social, I mean, mm. socially driven, as you know, and they just it couldn't, they couldn't manage it. And you know what's interesting? I would see most of the girls that I see very much fit Millie's role of really socially motivated, and they are, but we want to make sure that they can be socially successful because they're so motivated to have a friend. It doesn't have to be a lot. It just has to be one sometimes can make such a difference. The reason that you get the wallflower girls, as you talked about, who are easy to manage is because they are so riddled with anxiety that they can't socially interact. And with mental health issues such as anxiety and depression being being very prevalent in children who have additional needs, is that at all linked to at what point they receive their diagnosis? So when someone has an early diagnosis and has support structures early, do you see a difference in their mental health, you know, in, in their teenage years as opposed to, like you said, a, a girl who's diagnosed at 12, 13? That's a really interesting point you raise because I think the level of, of anxiety very much depends on how supportive your environment is and how many people understand what's going on for you. So if you've had a long time where that hasn't happened, you've probably lost a lot of trust. And confidence as well. We know that when any of us become anxious, we often want to withdraw because we're fearful. So for these children and and young adults, they're fearful because they don't understand what's going on and they also don't know how to problem solve quickly. Mm. And they often misinterpret the fear. So they're living with a lot of that anxiety. Whether their anxiety is increased at the age of diagnosis when that happens, you know, I would say yes. We, we see more anxious children and often it's master's anxiety. They're, they're shy and withdrawn. They have anxiety. They don't have ASD. Mm. So I, I definitely think that's, that's important. But in saying that, we do know that children with additional needs who get support in managing anxiety actually do better in the long run because the depression that we see that often occurs in anxiety is because depression is a result of anxiety. Anxiety makes you withdraw and become fearful and lonely. So it's sort of the kicker into depression. Mm. So that's why we see 40% of children with autism have a diagnosis of anxiety. And how much of your work as a psychologist is, you know, addressing these mental health challenges as a, as compared to, say, behavioural or social skill development? Absolutely. So what, it's the chicken or the egg. Yeah. Because you have to do <laughs> right. both at the same time because the mental health challenges increase if they're not coping with their behaviour and also with those, those, those social issues. Okay, so if they're not managed, then your anxiety increases. And often it's about helping families and teachers manage their behaviour because they've got enough going on. It's us helping them do that. Mm. And then it's giving children the tools to manage their anxiety. And look, we know that the evidence-based therapy for anxiety that's the most effective is cognitive behavioural therapy. And that does work well for children with anxiety, but It depends on the way it's delivered. Mm. So you can't use the CBT that you would implement for a neurotypical child because that won't work. So has CBT been, has it had like an upgrade to have that sort of factoring in? Absolutely. So a lot of the programs, we know that they need to be more visual 
mm-hmm. less wordy, lots more vid- videos, lots more acting it out, lots more role modelling. And in, in my practice, I always felt that you got to really utilise that in a group setting. Yeah. Oh, I mean, Millie keeps asking when the when are the social skills back? When's it back? And it's funny, we call them social skills group, but a lot of it's about managing your anxiety in that situation. All those other emotional issues, which is anger, because we often don't talk about that, but, you know, my experience is, and it's, it's very well founded that you're angry because you're worried or scared about something. Oh, anger has been one of our biggest mm. challenges for two out of three of our kids. Mm-hmm. And I always see it as distress. Mm. It looks very much distress-like. Yeah. It's getting back to what we call what's the core fear that's sitting behind that emotion. And what I find so hard, and perhaps we can unpack this a little bit, is I don't have autism, so I don't know what I don't understand about mm. Millie. I do have ADHD, and actually parenting another ADHD child is quite amazing. I feel really grateful that I can do that for my son. And then our little guy has anxiety, so we're sort of quite familiar with that. <laughs> As a parent who is struggling to understand, can you talk a little bit through what you've seen with parents about how they cope, how they come, how they, I mean, I call it like a process of grief. And I, and I don't say that because it's not, I, 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 my first comment is it's not for me, but actually it is a bit for me because there's a loss there for what mm. is not and there's something else that we didn't sort of know anything about. But it's also my, mainly my grief for her pain. I can see it. And that's absolutely true. Parents come come to a psychologist or a paediatrician because they want the best outcome for their child. So that's the level that every parent wants to know what's going on and what do we do to help. The journey can be quite different though. Tell us a little bit about how it's different. Well, I think it depends on your own knowledge of any special needs. It's also what your expectation of being a parent was. I think that's very different for very different um, individuals. And I think it's also in terms of partners, where they sit and how they're going to cope because the reaction can often be quite different. You're a child psychologist. How much do you feel like you are treating the parents? Or the, in, is that, do you see that as part of your role? Absolutely, absolutely. This is, you know... You know, even in your psychology training, you change as a psychologist and you choose to specialise. But in this role, it is so much about making sure that parents are getting the support they need. And often that might be from me. Often it's about me saying to them, and I I always say this, once I give you the diagnosis, and this doesn't matter what it's for, you know, this is the same child. It's the same child you brought to me that you're leaving with. Just because they have this label or this disorder doesn't change who they are. And I think that's really, really important. Mm. A lot of families express anger and disbelief at me and say, you're wrong. And I am always showing them that I'm the multidisciplinary assessment. So the testing that I've done shows, it's actually not me that's making the call. It's the assessment that indicates this. You need to take time to process that. And That will take a while. There's some families that I diagnose and I don't see for many years because I don't believe in the diagnosis and that's absolutely fine. That is their choice. There is no judgment there. But then they'll often come back and, you know, we'll work together in in supporting their child. There are some parents who are very cross to start with and don't believe it, but 
they push through and they keep coming back and they're in a very different place at the end of that journey. And have you noticed over the past 20 years that that initial period of, of reconciliation and understanding and like you said, there's, there's anger and disbelief. Have you seen a shift in that process though where what families might have been like 10, 15 years ago to now, what, what changes have you seen in just understanding the diagnosis? Absolutely. I think if I look at the first time I was making, you know, these statements in a room to families and now it's completely different because statistically more families have heard of autism. They know somebody who has it. Is there data somewhere when you say just, yeah. where is that data? Well, we know that the data is that there's more diagnoses so that we know that more families, individuals, you know, adults without children have heard this word. And it's not just autism in the, you know, often the only person people knew with autism was Dustin Hoffman in Rain Man. Mm. Mm -hmm. That was their only experience of it. And now it's so much, a much broader spectrum of children, adults, highly successful individuals. So we know that. So and people are often more clued into, I think this could be a possibility. Whereas once upon a time, people didn't really know what some of the traits were. And now we all know, um, most of us know. I think one of the things we have to be careful of, though, is the misuse of the title. And when people use it and say, oh, you know, that's a bit of an ASD thing, you know, I'm not really comfortable with that. It's the same when people misuse the word OCD. Mm. Oh, I've got OCD, I want my room tidy. Uh, no, you don't. Um, so the same goes for this. Yeah, and, and with this advocacy, like obviously what you're saying is the more we're speaking about it, the more people are aware of it and therefore able to deal with things in a better way. But the, the adage, all, all press is good press, isn't necessarily no, true. Yeah. You know, you can spread negative things, harmful things, damaging comments. Yeah. So obviously we're trying to just improve education and, and allow for more access to knowledge, which is what you're saying, but what are the positive ways to do that and, and what are the ways to avoid trying to be an advocate or trying to just increase visibility but actually potentially doing it in a way that is damaging or harmful to the community and the perception of the community? So I think it's important to understand that autism is a spectrum. So what one presentation will look like is quite different and I think we need really need the community to understand that. So... For example, the young man who got, who was that 14-year-old boy. Oh, gosh, did we not all ride that way? 500 volunteers went out to try and find him. But you know what I think the good press about that was is that that community, um, the searchers, took on the strategies and the knowledge that we have that they got from the mother. They didn't get it from a textbook. They listened to her because, and she would have described what's going to work for him. So I think that's, so in some ways those moments that are handled like that are really great. I think, you know, the idea of what we want, and this is obviously what this this process is about, is you just want people to get it. Yep, that's that's what we're we're trying to do with all the different expertise and all the different perspectives. Um, We've got parents, we've got individuals living with, you know, their own challenges. We we really want to just get all the different perspectives and share them so that people can understand and care a little bit more. Yeah, it's like having the hairdresser who gets it, the person at the restaurant. Exactly. In the toy store, you know, the the bus driver, those, I mean, you know yourself, those people can make a huge difference to your child's day. And to your day as a yeah, parent. That, that is such a simple way to describe exactly what we're trying to do as advocates mm. is just get people to get it. 
Yep. Not not everyone becomes, you know, a massive protesting advocate. Not yep. everyone becomes so involved. But disability advocacy at this stage is just trying to create a platform where people get it. Yeah. And I think it starts, it starts with it starts with educating your own family too. You know, I'm very lucky I have three adult children, but they've heard, you know, about behavioral challenges in my clients and some of them have worked with me and their knowledge, which they, you know, all in the workplace now, they consider that to be such an advantage because they'll come home and say, you know, oh, mum, someone came into work today. They've got a diagnosis, I'm sure, of something. And they were able to cope with them so much better. You know, my son's a physiotherapist. He says having this knowledge has changed the way he can operate in his profession. Mm. So, you know, it, it's wonderful to think that we have that greater understanding. And I do think that's happening in our schools. Yeah, I do. And also, I mean, siblings. Yes. Right? So, I mean, my boys are already so much more compassionate. They're mm-hmm. like genius mediators. You know, yes. they can resolve problems with high complexity. Mm. And while I, I sometimes feel sorry for them that they have to live in this more high stress life. I also think it's really character building and I think they they already are, but I think they'll continue to be really compassionate, beautiful, open-minded kids. On that note, Deidre, because we are running out of time, it's been such a pleasure. I think we could go on and on. Jordan and I are very passionate about happy endings, happy stories. Yes. Um, is, is there a story you could share with us that just will make us, remind us that through all these challenges, some fantastic outcomes come through, you know, the, the right kind of support and love. Absolutely. So when I thought about this, I think it's the idea of, you know, what people might consider to be a great outcome and what a great outcome looks like for a young adult or for mum and dad or that varies. But there was one young man that still to this day, he must be 30 now. Gosh, I've been doing this <laughs> Don't for do that. too long. Don't do that. Anyway, um, let's call him James. So James came along. He was a late diagnosis. What's late? Oh, he would have been 11, which is quite late for a boy. I shouldn't say that, but it's true. He had a wonderful paediatrician. Mum, you know, she was doing it hard. She was a single mum, lower socioeconomic area. So she worked in disability services. So she had some knowledge of what was available, but she was a great support to James. And James was probably low average in terms of, you know, IQ functioning. So, you know thereabouts and he had a lot of great skills you know he saw speech because I had speech pathology support because his expressive and receptive language wasn't good but he was very good visually so he was like many of my clients very obsessed with gaming and would spend hours and hours and hours so he ended up completing year 12 which sorts. is always a win it's always a win it you know it looks quite different um look the school weren't fantastic all the time but mum was very much a gentle advocate and had lots of conversations with them. So it's always that idea of we got him through. Anyway, he then ended up applying to do a Bachelor of Gaming, which sounds like a dream come true, I think, for every adolescent male. And I know I'm being gender mother. specific, but yeah. So what is my child going to come away with with a Bachelor of Gaming? Anyway, this isn't what it was about. He was doing something he loved. But this is about talking about how the wider community can become involved because PwC invited 30 graduates to apply for an internship and that was for um, a position with their cyber security area and they came along and did 30, and this was a couple of years ago, so I don't know where it sits now, but this was definitely a fantastic process, 
13 got accepted. James was one of them. Amazing. Amazing. So three weeks of training, you know, Lego mind, robot building, cybersecurity testing, lots and lots of different things. And at the end of it, three were offered a position and James was one oh, of I'm them. I'm going to cry. It's so beautiful. So James is now um, a cybersecurity consultant at Price. Waterhouse Goofers, is that how you say it? Yeah, that's how you say it. Anyway, and the lovely thing is mum, you know, sent me an email with all of this and she sent me, like, with James's permission, a part of his report, you know, from feedback from from his managers and it was just so delightful to read the fantastic things that he was achieving. But more delightful was that James was just happy he got to do what he liked doing. What a win. It's not about the job for him. It's the fact that he goes somewhere every day, possibly with a lot of people who think like him, mm. and works in this environment. Mm. And, you know, hats off to mum. Hats off. And to James. Yep. And, and to this company for providing. So he's one of my yeah, very special stories. That's, that's a awesome. beautiful Just story. Getting put in the right environment to thrive and, and having belief and, and trust in the system that... Don't force him into a structure that won't suit him and he was allowed to thrive and now he's doing amazing. amazing things. Yeah. It does make me feel like the future is probably not a bad place to be for autistic, for some, many autistic, not all. I mean, again, we really avoid generalisation because yeah. I know not everyone's good at IT and not everyone no. is that way inclined. But for those who are, I mean, what I see is really, really good problem solving, yeah. really remarkable problem solving at, you know, age 10. And, and I think... Oh, I was going to say, I'm constantly saying, oh, I would never have thought of that. What a fantastic <laughs> idea all the time. And that's the kind of skills that in the future are going to be really highly valued. So. And I think we're scratching the surface. I think that it's been amazing that we've seen, oh, people with Asperger's are great at tech and now, you know, they dominate the world. And that's an amazing start. Mm-hmm. But it's also an obvious one. You know, it's a skill that as we build up in tech, it's they've had a natural inclination. But I think that as we probably know, there are so many just little skills and, and better environments to be able to put into for people with special needs to, to thrive. But understanding that every individual has so much more potential if you really put them in the right environments and, and understand that what skills are are still pretty limited and can be expanded a lot. I think there is so much potential as we also all become just a bit more open-minded and a bit more understanding of people thinking differently and fitting into different structures that right now don't really look concrete. It's the understanding. I think to me that's the most, just be understanding. Yeah. Deidre, thank you so much. Such a pleasure to have you. The birds were really singing out there. So I felt like a really happy time. Thank (laughs) you so much. And look, would you come back and see us again? There's so many other areas we'd like to explore. So Very happy. That would be wonderful, Very Deirdre. happy too. Well, thanks again. Thank you. It was really, it was really great to chat. See you next time. Thanks, Deidre. Bye. Bye.